The gospel reading for the morning is from uh, Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter. Listen for God's word. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the small, independent movie Sunshine Cleaning, Amy Adams and Emily Blunt play sisters struggling with the meaning of their lives now in adulthood. Before either was born, the sister's mother was an aspiring actress. She appeared in exactly one TV movie of the week as a waitress at a truck stop diner where she got to utter one line in the movie. You want the pecan pie? I recommend our pecan pie. The actress their mother committed suicide when the sisters were very young. All they have as a tangible memory of their mother is that one scene in that one movie. Whenever it appears on TV, always late at night, the sisters call each other and they go to their respective TVs watching the scene over and over again. You want the pecan pie? I recommend our pecan pie. Trapped in a present, they're struggling to grasp. They glimpse again a yesterday they will never have and a future they can never experience. On the morning of September 11, 2001, the theologian Rowan Williams, who later became Archbishop of Canterbury, was gathered with a group of scholars and clergy in a recording studio near the World Trade Center in New York City. The group was preparing to tape a religious broadcast on the theme of spirituality. We were interrupted, Williams writes, with studied understatement. I am still thinking about what it meant to be interrupted like that. They were about to tape several hours of talk about God when this catastrophe struck, intruding on their present moment, and all the religious talk they had planned was reduced to silence. We better acknowledge, Williams says, the sheer danger of religiousness. Sadly, it can be a way of teaching ourselves not to see the particular human agony in front of us today. The text from Luke this morning describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry. An inaugural sermon preached 
in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. A local product, the congregation knew Jesus well, remembered him as a little boy, was no doubt proud of the reports they were getting from surrounding regions about his teaching and preaching and wonder-working. So they settled in to hear this articulate young man and what he would say. And those who knew him and those who loved him and those who helped raise him and those who took pride in his development by the end of the sermon tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Get no ideas this morning. What happened? An interruption happened. And the followers of Jesus Christ are still thinking all these years later about what it meant to be interrupted like that. On the face of it, nothing could be more expected than Jesus' arrival in Nazareth. After all, that's where he was brought up. Nothing could be more expected than him taking the Isaiah scroll. That's what they handed him It was, in effect, in the bulletin for the morning. What set this crowd so on edge? Well, Jesus did not curry favor with the local group. He proclaimed the biblical truth that God does not play favorites. There are no insiders or outsiders in God's expansive realm. And whenever we have tried to sort in the church who's in and who's out, it has led to catastrophe. That didn't go over too well. The careful reading of the text, however, I think it was one singular word that Jesus spoke that started the fire. The word that Jesus spoke that broke everything apart was that one word, today. Today, said Jesus, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Suddenly, nothing is routine, and nothing is ordinary, and everything is urgent, and everything is today, and God is present. Like the sisters in the movie, it is so tempting to lose ourselves by focusing either in the past or in the future. It is so easy for us to try to rework yesterday or to stake our hope in some furtive tomorrow that will never come. You want the pecan pie? I recommend our pecan pie. When baseball idol Mickey Mantle was dying of liver cancer, after a life of amazing achievement on the baseball field, but recklessness and debauchery off the field, He was asked what advice he would give the young people who still looked up to him after all these years. Looking straight into the camera, words dripping with lament, he said simply, don't be like me. The regret that many of us carry about yesterday's squandered like Mickey Mantle, is a force sometimes that we cannot escape. And then on the other hand, sometimes I think about people that I've known as a pastor, especially in times of crisis, and faces vividly come back to me. A 40-something man standing in the middle of an intensive care unit. His wife had been in a terrible car accident. She was being kept alive by machines. Their lives, 
he said to me at 2.30 in the morning, had been a blur. Uh, They hadn't talked to each other, really talked in two months or, or three months or four months. Nothing was wrong. They just got busy. They just got preoccupied. And they kept saying, oh, it's okay. We always have tomorrow. Jesus rarely spoke about yesterday or tomorrow. Jesus was about today. Today this is fulfilled. Today you will be with me in paradise. The kingdom of God is at hand today. His ministry was brought forth from the generations of the faithful, to be sure, those who heeded God's call and prepared the way, but Jesus never lived in that past. He offered hope for tomorrow. Jesus offered a future of promise and possibility with God, but he never deferred living until then. Jesus was about today. Jesus proclaimed that day in Nazareth that his ministry was good news to the poor, release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, which is all great as poetry. But there is something in Jesus' words and tone that day in his hometown that made people realize he wasn't just being poetic. He was actually talking about all this stuff today. As poetry, they were ready to go out the door and say, nice sermon, I enjoyed that. As something Jesus actually expected to take place today, they began to squirm in their pews So all through Luke, when Jesus encountered the widow whose son had died uh, and the woman who had spent all her money in vain on physicians, they begin to get a sense that Jesus is not just illustrating a point about love. He was issuing a call to action, to live out in real time the truth that God has an active intention to reverse the appearances of the world today. Jesus really did believe that God was scattering the proud in the imagination of their hearts and bringing down the powerful and lifting up the lowly today. So when Jesus encountered the man held captive by a demon or the ten lepers or the oppressed woman of the city who yearned for forgiveness or Zacchaeus, the tax collector up in the tree who was captive to his own greed and the system, they were all set free by the power of God that Jesus embodied. And Jesus led them all to stand side by side to be embraced by us today. It's one thing to talk about all this. It's great to talk about all this. It's another thing to do it to enact a freedom and openness and grace, to live out costly love and risk-taking embrace that runs counter to all the status quo and conventional wisdom of our world. Now, preachers often stop preaching and go to meddling, and Jesus probably really lit the fuse of his hometown's indignation. After all this, when he joined Isaiah in proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's 
favor refers to the Old Testament concept of jubilee and every 50-year sabbatical of sabbaticals when property was returned to their original owners, when slaves were freed, when debts were canceled. Huh. Wall Street. The International Monetary Fund. The World Bank. The Inter-American Development Bank. Countries like Haiti and Greece. I wonder how all of they react to this sermon that day in Nazareth. A sermon can be nice religious words, but it's, if it's a word from the Lord, it's disruptive. A sermon, even a sermon from Jesus can be glossed over, but the fulfillment of God's ever-expansive promise must be heeded. The sermon that Jesus preached that day pared away complacency like a butcher knife. It changed things and forces us to adjust to the change. It is said that most of us, when we scan the daily news, are not really looking for anything new. What we're actually doing is trying to confirm that the world is more or less the same. We're rarely equipped for new news of today. News from God means that the world is not the way it was yesterday, and therefore I cannot live the way I lived yesterday. News from God means that we can't put off living until some tomorrow. We're called to live and act and forgive and reconcile and serve and give today. So Jesus preached for the hometown folks in Nazareth, and at first, they receive what he said as just a sermon. Sermons are a dime a dozen. Nobody got tense. No ushers rushed the preacher hustling Jesus out the side door. People smiled, you know. How nice it was to have him there. How proud Mary and Joseph must be. And then the words began to sink in. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Not yesterday in some time locked in the past. Not tomorrow in some Shangri-La future, but fulfilled now in your hearing. Not in somebody else's hearing. Not in Abraham or David or Deborah or Sarah's hearing. Not in the hearing of the people of the 815 service or the 930 service. Not fulfilled in the person sitting next to you today. But in you, this is not just a sermon. God had come close now in your life. The world has now changed. God's truth was present in all its demanding fullness. And you can fight it or you can follow it, but you cannot ignore it. And to those who may be lost reworking yesterday or deferring to some tomorrow, these words might be threatening enough to make us want to throw Jesus off a cliff. But if we can hang in with this insistence that we join God in the needs and call of today, these words contain a potent hope. 
Last weekend, in conjunction with the birthday observance of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there were many interviews with those who worked with Dr. King. One of the interviews was with the Reverend Samuel Billy Kiles, who was standing right next to King on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel on April 4, 1968, when King was murdered. Kiles had invited Dr. King to dinner that night, and they were preparing at the motel to go to dinner. Reverend Kyles was asked last weekend what he was gonna preach in commemoration of Dr. King, and he said, I'll be talking about knocking holes in the darkness. Evidently, the 19th century writer Robert Louis Stevenson was a man who never enjoyed good health. He spent a lot of time in his room, even as a child, and he was always looking out the window. His nurse asked him one day, Robert, what are you doing? He said, I'm watching that old man knock holes in the darkness. She said, what are you talking about? And the young boy said, there's a man who comes each night, he climbs up the ladder and lights a light, and then he climbs down and moves the ladder to the next pole and climbs up and lights the light and climbs down and moves the ladder and climbs up and lights the light all the way down the street. And everywhere he would light this light, it appeared to the boy that a hole was being knocked in the darkness. And so, Kyle said, I'm suggesting that those of us now who have the strength and the ability, we should be knocking holes in the darkness. Martin King came to Memphis, he said, and it was a dark place to come. But he came, and he came knocking holes in the darkness. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus appeared in his hometown synagogue, Jesus' proclamation knocked holes in the darkness. But today, what about you and me today? What we have lost, Barbara Brown Taylor has written, is a full sense of the power of God to recruit people who've made terrible choices, to invade the most hopeless lives and fill them with light, to sneak up on people who are thinking about lunch and not the gospel and not God and smack them upside the head with glory and get them on the move for the gospel. I believe that can happen. I, I believe that can happen with you and with me. I believe, guided by God, we can knock holes in the darkness today.